This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 61 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Aaron Liu, the co-founder and CEO of Cara. Cara is an American design house of luxury sports accessories based in New York City that offers sports bags, small leather goods, and fitness-related accessories for inside and outside of the fitness studio. In this episode, Aaron shares with us his journey from growing up in China and Spain to working in his family's Chinese restaurants, to studying engineering at the University of Massachusetts, to landing his first job at his dream company, General Electric. He talks with us about how he and his co-founder, Carmen, came up with the name Cara, why they chose not to be venture-backed, and how they reacted to the pandemic by donating masks and creating Cara Cares. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story and building Kara. Um, we go way back for when, when did we, we met at XRC labs. Was that like 2016? 2015, 2016. I think it was end of 15 in 2016. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, love your show. Love the Thank content. Uh, pleasure to, uh, to double click and, and dive, dive right in. Awesome. Well, yeah, I feel like I know you, but I don't know you know you. So I'm excited to hear way back all about you. Where, uh, you know, tell me about where you grew up. Where are you from originally? And what was childhood like? You know, did you have siblings? What did your parents do? Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Let's get personal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm, I'm Chinese background. So I was born in, in Shanghai, China. Um, and then we moved to Madrid, Spain when I was pretty young, yeah, um, about eight years old. Um, and um, 
you know, part of my family was in Spain. It's a wonderful country, and and we kind of grew up in in Spain. As a matter of fact, my my co-founder for the brand, uh, she was also born in in Spain, and that's how our families knew each other. How how the brand usually started. I'm sure we're gonna get into that in yeah. in a minute. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Spain, came to the States for college, um, stayed for undergrad and business school. Um, you know, most of my family still divides their time between Shanghai, Hong Kong, Madrid, New York. So we, we're somewhat of an international family. And uh, But I, I'm currently spending most of my time between Asia um, and, and New York. That's kind of where, where, I, uh, where I spend my time. And then background-wise, you know, my family has always been in the fashion industry, more on the supply chain manufacturing side of things. Um, I didn't want to go back, go back or go into fashion right away. So I spent about a little over 10 years in, in, in finance, uh, in corporate finance with, uh, with General Electric. So, mm-hmm. well, uh, before we get too far along, I want to know about yeah. little Aaron, like kid right. Aaron. When you were yeah. a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, it's funny, you know, it's, I always knew I want to be a merchant. It's funny, okay. I, maybe it's not that uh, inspiring of a, of, of a goal, because, you know, I think I talk to my kids or, or I talk to other, other little kids like, oh, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a firefighter. Right, right. And I, I knew I want to be, I want to be negotiating. I want to <laughs> be, you know, I want to, I, I was the kind of kid that was really happy counting money, you know, that we got from Christmas. You know, other kids might be playing video games. I was just like oh, the counting money that I got. You know, like it's it's uh, it, it's. And, but no, I I my family. You know, even growing up, they were all merchants. You know, they were they had restaurant businesses, they had export import businesses. So, it, I guess it runs in the blood that I've always aspired to to be like my my fa- my my parents or or my grandparents. So I think merchant was the 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 one thing that I was pretty clear in early days that I wanted to wanted to be. That's awesome. Were you like counting or stealing all the Monopoly money? Cause I would steal the money from the Monopoly game and like put it into a wallet and like take it to the store and like, you know, pretend that I had all this money or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even, thre- even threatening my family say like, Hey, I'll give you exchange a hundred dollars, you know, from Monopoly for, you know, the equivalent of like a dollar, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, but no, it's interesting because also because I grew up in, in China in, in the early days back, this was in the eighties, um, you know, China wasn't what it is now. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, China has gone through so much growth in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, but growing up, you know, we saw poverty. I mean, you know, not going to build around the bushes. Right. I mean, you know, so it was very clear to me, you know, what my parents had to do to get out of that situation. And it was very clear to me what I wanted to do, had to do to, to kind of continue that, that legacy to a certain extent. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was good. Awesome. And did you play any sports or what were your interests outside of that other than trying to sell kids on things to get their money or whatever yeah. you were doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was a pretty competitive athlete, I, I would say. Um, less than middle school and, and, and elementary school, but once I got to high school and college. So I, I did fencing. So I fence, uh, you know, pretty much from high school or end of high school all the way until now. I still, I still fence. Um, so that was the main sport. It's funny because, you know, I, I am into martial arts. So like right now I do a few other things besides fencing, but growing up, 
you know, in Spain, it was funny because, you know, in Spain, it was either soccer or basketball or judo or, or fencing, you know, like yeah. there weren't that many options, if you may. And I kind of just like, you know, the sword fighting aspect of things. So I picked up a sword and was like, oh, let me try that out. And it's a great sport, you know, in the sense that it's, it's very much a mind game. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's sure there's a physical aspect of things that you have to be fit and nimble and all that. But, you know, they call it a, a mind chess, right? So it's all about, you know, creating an environment where you make your opponent think you're going to do certain things um, mm. so that they can do something, they can react to it. So it's, it's an interesting sport. But yeah, that's might not be the most conventional sport, I think, maybe. Yeah, uh, you're the first on the podcast to do fencing for sure. So yeah, congrats. So the community is small. You know, it's, it's um, even my wife tells me like fencing, like when I first met you, what? what that was you know so yeah that's uh that's that you're in the kitchen with a knife she's like put it down yeah martial arts so are you a black belt or or what yeah so i mean right now i uh so i mainly i've been i've been doing muay thai which is thai kickboxing for almost almost eight eight nine years now wow uh it's a beautiful art um it's originally from thailand um they have a slightly different, I guess, grading system than traditional Japanese or Korean martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't wear your ranks on, on uh, physically, if you may. So there's no bells, there's no mm-hmm. shirts, there's nothing that says, "Oh, that's a black belt versus a white belt." Um, it's it's very much simply just, you know, it's almost something that you keep it to yourself. And obviously, if you do end up competing and so on and so forth you get ranked and, and group with different people, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful sport. I'm very much into strategy to a certain extent. And just like fencing, I think boxing or Muay Thai, you know, any of the martial arts, it's very much a mind game at the mm-hmm. end of the day beyond, of course, there's a physical aspect of things, but I, I love that. I, I, I thrive on, you know, kind of challenging myself mentally so that I, yeah. you know, obviously there's a competition aspect of things and you always want to come out winning. Uh, but I think trying to win, even if you didn't win at the end of the day, but having tried really hard to to get there, I think that's, that's pretty rewarding as well. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of first jobs did you have like in high school before going, going to college? What were some of those first jobs that you oh, had? Oh man, you bring me way back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I had all sorts of jobs, you know, like you got to realize, right? I mean, growing up, I knew I wouldn't be a merchant. I want to be hustling and 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 being in the midst of things, right? Mm-hmm. So, so first of all, my parents owned Chinese restaurants growing up. They owned a chain of Chinese restaurants in, in Spain. So it comes with the territory. You had to work on the restaurants, you know, and you name it. I mean, from the kitchen all the way to being a wait, wait, you know, waiting tables down the road or a little later on. Mm-hmm. I've had that. Um, then once I got to high school, I I, I started working in clubs in in in, in nightclubs as a promoter. You know, were you uh, really? Where was this in Spain? In Madrid, yeah, in, in Spain. Um, right. And I loved it. You know, as for a little kid, you can imagine. You know that you're organizing parties, you're promoting certain events, you bring cool yeah. DJs. Um, you know, you have a little booth, you know, that, that's like for promoters only that you can bring VIPs in all the girls. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I, I loved it. Right. And it was good pocket money, you know, it wasn't much, but it was, it was, 
it made me feel it made me feel somewhat alive, if you may, right? In yeah. terms of like, you know, obviously you have, I was decent in school. Um, but yeah, I, I, I always knew that, you know, school was going to help me to sharpen my mind and get you educated. That's obviously where where I, I that's my main focus, if you may. But mm-hmm. that was the kind of the trajectory I took in terms of jobs outside of school. And then when I came to the US, um, it's it's I mean for me it was all about testing different things you know when I went to I came to US for college, and I knew that I, I had tons of energy and just wanted to try different things so I went from customer service job to waiting tables in restaurants from touring kids, um, from you know library jobs. Once yeah. I got to my junior and senior year, even sophomore years. And you were at University of Massachusetts, right? That's right. I went to UMass Amherst for undergrad. And you were studying um, business? No, I was just studying engineering, actually. Really? So, Yeah, it, it's funny because that was one thing that, you know, even though I knew business is what I wanted to be and being a merchant and all that, it, you know, you got to realize coming to the U.S., actually, it's quite expensive for a foreign student. Mm-hmm. Um especially coming from a country in Europe like Spain where education is free, you know, it's yeah. part of the, the <laughs> right. social, you know, well-being yeah. for European countries. So, you know, I think that was the, that was the agreement with my parents. They're like, listen, we know you're going to become a business person at the end of the day. We don't want you to go to school for business. The only kind of, uh, uh, um, I guess, requirements they had for letting me come to the States for school was that I had to study engineering. And, and the truth to be told, I loved it. Hmm. I went to school for engineering and math. Um, so I double majored in both. And, you know, to me, I knew I wasn't going to go and build, you know, computers or, or, or I wasn't going to work as an engineer. But I, I thrive on the concept of problem solving. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was very interesting to me in terms of everybody's giving a set of tools in terms of math equations and, and different theories. But, you know, how do you go about solving a product uh, or solving a problem? That was that was very interesting. And and I knew, you know, if I was going to do engineering, that I definitely want to do it in the U.S. just because I think the U.S. has a very pragmatic way of solving problems mm-hmm. versus, you know, other parts of the world, if you look at how they go about solving problems or education in general, it's more rigid. And it's all about like, oh, you know, like you you memorize things a lot more. It's it's less about creative problem solving versus I feel like the entire US education is all about how do you get creative in terms of problem solving. So I actually loved it. You know, college was a great experience for me. Um, loved the US and hence I, you know, kind of stayed afterwards. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think to touch your point before, when I got to junior and senior year, that's when I took my internships a lot more seriously. Yeah. So that's when I started working with, you know, companies that I aspired to work with at one point later in my career. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, that's college. So what companies did you aspire to or where did you end up having these internships and what was your first job out of college? Yeah, so I knew right away from the get-go that, you know, there's a, there was a handful of companies I wanted to work for. Um, like what? One of them is GE. So okay. General Electric was one of the companies. I read a book from Jack Welch, Straight from the Gut. Um, I don't know if you or, or the listeners have read it. It's a bit old, so I'm maybe dating myself a bit here. But, um, but it's uh, I I just loved his 
philosophy about business. I, I don't think that works in today's environment, but you know, back when I was going to school or finishing school, I knew, I knew that was one company that I really admired. Um, you know, there were other companies I, I looked into potentially getting into mainly in the consulting space. So, you know, Boston consulting group, McKinsey and so on and so forth. But, um, G really attracted me just because they were a conglomerate. They had a bunch of different companies within them uh, that was interesting to me. So they range from banking all the way to locomotives and aircraft engines, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that was really interesting. So yeah, so I, you know, basically leveraged my network uh, yeah. in a good, you know, kind of entrepreneurial fashion to see find a way to to basically get introduced to the to the company. Um, yeah find out that uh, we did have a common contact within my fraternity. I was in a fraternity that, uh, and to this day, this, this this one guy, his name is Eric, and he's still a mentor of mine to a certain extent. Nice. We connected, we chatted. I told him that how much I loved the company, told him that uh, we, I, I hear the reasons why I think I, I should get a shot to go internship. He talked to the right guy, got me the internship, and the internship was very interesting, you know, G is very much uh, a merit-driven organization. So it's not like, you know, you know somebody is guaranteed a job or guaranteed right. promotions and so on and so forth. It doesn't work like that, right? So um, so what basically ends up happening is went through a number of rounds for interview, was privileged enough to get a, get, get an offer to join the internship. Nice. I How excited were you? Were you like, oh my oh, God, man. I can't believe I just made this happen. You know, for a foreign kid, right, that yeah. was just starting to get around speaking better English. I still don't speak perfect <laughs> English yet, you know, but, but, you know, I, I coming to the U S in the beginning, didn't even speak English much. Right. Cause yeah. background Spanish and, and Chinese back then. Right. And uh, yeah, it was a huge privilege. And you know, what, what made it even more interesting was that it was a group of us. I want to say it was about 20 of us. And uh, it was very clear from the get go that basically they said this was our junior year. So I still have one more year to finish school. And uh, the program, the way they set it up was that the top four essentially will get invited to join GE before you even graduate. So you basically give you an offer to your junior year. So senior year, basically, you know exactly where you're going. Wow. Um, so almost like a draft, you know, like mm -hmm. a committee. Kind of Sounds situation. like it. Man, I worked my butt off. <laughs> you're like, I'm going to be one of those four. Yeah, I mean, for the eight weeks that we were there, I don't. I think I slept very little. I knew very little, so I, I, I knew. And bear in mind, I was in the same class, you know, in, in that internship with a lot of other kids. Few of them went from or came from very top schools. You know, I remember there was a bunch of them from UVA, University of Virginia, which was a great school from the mm -hmm. business school. There were a bunch of them from, I think a couple of them from Harvard. I mean, G always, you know, hires from, you know, great schools in general. So right. I felt like I, I started, um, I, I started uh, already not having a chance to get that role, which basically pushed me to work even harder. Right. So right. I, I always thought I was the dumbest guy in the room as far as like what the people, I, and, 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 Maybe I was fooling some people to a certain extent, but there was a lot of things I did not understand, you know, but you, you bet what I did is I, I jot down the notes, went home, looked it up, tried to study it, and then tried to, to sound more intelligent next time, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was, I mean, and then I had other internships, you know, I had internship with Putnam Investments, Lucent Technologies and, and a few mm -hmm. others, but 
you know, that was the one that was the most memorable. And that was the one that, you know, I did end up being one of the top four. All right. You did it. Yeah. Did, did end up getting an invitation. Hard work pays off. It, it really does. It really does. I think, I think, um, you know, I would say this to now people that I mentor that it's not a myth, it, you know, like you work hard and you put your heart in and you, and you head into certain things. Uh, yes, there's always politics. There's always extra things that might not directly tie into hard work and merit, mm -hmm. but I would say 90% of the time when you work hard and you put your heart into things, you will pay off. So, so anyway, so I, I, I got invited to join back, spend the next decade, uh, with, with GE, mm -hmm. um, moved, I think North about 15 countries, um, with them. So I want to say about six divisions within, within GE and, um, one of the best experiences in my life. I mean, one of the things I, I, I failed to mention before is one of the things I wanted to really learn from GE, um, and that was one of the things that I really want to get out of it. It's GE is a great operator. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at, you know, there's a lot of great things about who they are. They're great. They have great leadership programs. So they brew some of the world's best CEOs. I mean, if you just even looking around currently, you know, many, many of the world's leading company CEOs came from GE from some of the same programs I went through. So I knew I wanted to get in and go through the ranks and kind of learn that. Um, I knew that GE had just, it was a process, process, process organization. It was all about creating sustainable processes to scale. Um, obviously, there's also other aspects like commercial processes and, and technology aspects. That, that really made them really great. But for mm -hmm. me, it was all about learning the different processes and how to be a good leader, you know, how to manage teams and incentivize people and how to negotiate things and so on and so forth. So what are um, some of those key insights? Can you share what are the, some of the, like specifically what you learned about managing people, leadership that you kind of took from your experience that you use today? Yeah, no, I, I, a ton, but if I boil down to, so maybe I share a couple from the leadership standpoint, empathy, empathy, is probably the number one thing that would get you very far, you know, and it was tough for a young manager when I first started to have that sort of empathy in the beginning, mm -hmm. because, you know, you come from the environment where it's like, you know, nobody give you anything for free. You work really hard, <laughs> right? Like you made it to a manager position that you are at the point that you can manage others. Um, you kind of want to hold people to the same standards, you mm -hmm. know, as far as like hours that they need to work or, mm -hmm. you know, different bars that you set for everyone, which, which it's not bad. You know, that, all those things are good, but you, you have to understand the human aspect of people. You know, not everybody came from the same background as you know, everybody has the same motivation as you do, you, right. you know, like it's very different where I came from than, you know, a lot of people I work with. Right. So having that perspective and having that emotional intelligence, um, was something that uh, I had to learn in the hard in the, in a quick way, a lot of tough feedback, a lot of, you know, like either you smart up or you're out, you know, like it was yeah. great as that. Um, so, so that, that's probably one of the key thing that I learned over the years is to be, you know, still kind of hold high rigor, high standards and hold your chin high, mm -hmm. right. In terms of be able to say, Hey, I work hard. Here's what I, everything I was able to accomplish. But, uh, but having the human empathy is probably my biggest lesson in terms of leadership. Um, when it comes to business and operations, I think once, once again, it's, it's processes, um, 
you know, I was exposed to Six Sigma and Lean. You know, those are two, I would say philosophies and how do you go about managing processes and scaling processes and businesses. Toyota initially invented that. Motorola later on adopted. GE, obviously, is a huge proponent of Six Sigma and Lean. Can you um, explain what that is to the audience members who have never heard of that before? Yeah, um, and I'm probably not doing justice to because we can spend an hour you know, right. just talking about that per- terminology itself. But it's a way of life to a certain extent if you're really talking to a purist. Um, Six Sigma, it's, it's all about eliminating defects, right? So... Um, you know, when you think about large manufacturing processes or large operations in general, um, when you have a lot of things turning on a mass scale, you by default would generate a lot of defects. So Six Sigma was all about how do you take a large operation processes and then, you know, create a controlled environment so that you minimize defects. So think of translating that into a real life. For instance, if you are making, let's say, heart monitors or CAT scans or aircraft engines, right? Like imagine one defect can kill people, right? right. So because these are, you're dealing with real... 737 max now. <laughs> exactly. Or even like, you know, the yeah. case of Toyota, you're making cars that, right. you know, can become a weapon, if you may. So mm-hmm. I think having the Six Sigma mentality or kind of process management methodology reduces the t- overall defects. Um, combined with Lean, Lean is something that was later added on, at least in the GE world, to the Six Sigma. And Lean also initially started in Toyota. Um, actually, I should kind of rectify myself. Six Sigma was really initially started in Motorola. Lean is the one that started with, with Toyota. And Lean, it's all about um, eliminating inefficiencies. Um, mm-hmm. So one was all about defects and Lean, it's all about making things go fast. You know, we call a single piece flow. So things needs to flow really fluidly one after another, but it has to be done in the most efficient and effective ways. Yeah. So, so you know, again, you know, the book that I was referencing before from Jack Welch uh, back in the G, you know, when I was kind of fell in love with G, the company back in the, my college days, talked a lot about that. So immediately in my mind, I knew that, hey, look, if I aspire to be a CEO or a business owner or whatever I end up being or managing an organization, having the know-how in terms of process management is very important to me. So that was one of the key things that, again, that really kind of attracted me and I walked away from GE in terms of the learning. We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. 
Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. Not only that, but Cogsy has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back-in-stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash CEO. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think that's uh, really insightful. And I think a lot of people are going to want to go grab that book by Jack Welsh. Um, what's yeah. it called again? Um, so he has several books. Um, Straight from the Gut, right? Straight from the Gut was the one that I that kind of stuck with me. You know, like you uh-huh. have several books in business that kind of stick with you. Right. Um, for me, that was one of them, you know, awesome. that just kind of gave me a lot of uh, inspiration in terms of who I want to become as a leader. Awesome. And so after your time at um, GE, where did you go? And then how did you start Cara? Yeah, so that's, that's when we get into the, uh, the entrepreneurial, <laughs> the less, um, I would say the less structured world, right? Because when uh-huh. you're in a company, to a certain extent, everything's very structured. You know, right. it's like you do good, you're going to go for managers or senior manager, director, VP, CEO, eventually, if you that's, that's the route you want to go and, and all that. Um, you know, I, I left GE, you know, knowing that I was ready for a change, you know, also that my family, because they're always in the fashion business. I think my, my, my uncles and my, and my, my dad was ready to kind of take them a step back from the company. So they would kind of start looking and say like, what's the succession plan looks like and so on and so forth. I always knew I wanted to come back to fashion for a number of reasons. One, I grew up with it and I joke around with a friend of mine not that long ago. You know, growing up, I remember most of my friends have like, video game magazines or sport magazines at home. You know, I, I grew up reading Vogue, you know, no, no, because I was that particularly interested in fashion because that was the only magazine around, right? Like just because my family has been always in, in fashion. So Mary Claire, Vogue, you know, you name it. Right. And yeah. um, so I, I had that bug in me in terms of, you know, you know, and, and, and of course I know all the major designers, you know, I, I, I knew, you know, what a Birkin bag is before any of my friends know even how to spell handbag, right? It's, yeah. it's, so, so, and, but at the same time, and you know this well, Lee, too, I mean, because you come from, from the same space as I am in terms of fashion, there's also a lot of inefficiencies in, in, in room for disruption, you know, and yeah. I hate using that word because it's overused, but um, yeah. th- there's opportunities, I guess that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I knew I want to be in handbag, just because my family has always been in handbag, we have the supply chain pretty much nailed down, right? Just because we've helped brands in the past to, you know, manufacture out of China and then and in Italy, both 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 of those two countries. And mm-hmm. uh, so we 
we had that competitive edge that we have the know-how and and you know funding to a certain extent to to help us getting better terms. Yeah. And you all want to be there. The one thing, you know, when we started Kara, and for those of you who don't know what Kara is, so the the number one kind of thesis behind Kara the brand was to make high-end functional handbags. Um, that was the mission and the thesis, right? We knew obviously a lot of fashion brands, a lot of them were doing really cool things when it comes to handbags. Um, I mean, just to name a really few cool brands that we like, like Celine, Dior, obviously mm-hmm. Gucci, Chanel, and and I mean, they're all doing really cool things. The one thing we felt like a lot of them fell short was that the bags were just not as functional as I think it should be. Um, you know, and I won't pick names because I think I think you listeners probably get it, right? It's that you know, it's a lot of them are very high end, but it's all about the logo. It's really not much about the how functional the product is at the end of the day. So, what we said is, what if we turn things around a little bit, still make the products in a very high end, exquisite way, um, but really kind of make it very functional and keep the prices below four hundred dollars in terms of our average order value, because we're going direct. You know, back in 2014, DTC was starting to become a thing. It wasn't as prominent as it is now, especially yeah. through the pandemic. But, you know, I mean, there were a few. Warby was there. Bonobos was there. Everlane just started to happen. I think for us, we started about the same time as brands like Allbirds and, and Away and so on and so forth. So it's starting to becoming a thing as far as like how to go to market. So we said... Okay, um, we have a good way to how to get to the customers. We have a good way to create a two-way relationship with our customers, right? Through digital channels such as our website and social media. But the one thing we're really going to bank on is superior product design in terms of making the, bring that functionality into the handbags. So, so yeah, so that's the that's the thesis, and that's kind of what you know made me kind of leave the corporate world, taking a stab at you know this particular venture. Truth to be told, we also had an agency at the same time. Um, it's a sourcing agency that we were helping smaller brands to source out of Europe and also in Asia. So, but really quickly after we went through a couple of test rounds with Kara in terms of the products, it was very clear to us that that was the area that we we want to spend most of our attention in. So, so that that's how we started. And so how did you come up with the name Kara? Like what were those first few, you know, moments, the aha moment of like, we're going to go do this together. It's exactly what we have to do to what are we going to name it? You know, those first steps that you need to start a business. Tell us a little bit more. I feel like that's a very sneaky question, Lee, because you know us pretty well and you know how difficult it was for us. I got to tell you, <laughs> I think that's probably one of the hardest things in the early Naming days. your company? Oh my Lord. Yeah, I, it's hard. I, I got, I got to tell you, I think we actually did, we had a different name, which I'm actually never going to say it because it really was really bad. Um, And uh, yeah, you know, it was was interesting because we didn't want to be a designer brand, right? So we didn't want to, it's not like one of those namesaking brands that the name, the brand is called after the designer, right? We we didn't want that. Um, At the same time, we didn't want to be something too, let's call it DTC, right? It's like, it's like, you know, like a play off from another word. And there's plenty of those out there. So I won't even name them. Um, yeah. Nothing bad. We just didn't, we just didn't want to be, be, be like that. So we landed on Kara. So Kara is actually, we, we feel very proud that we landed there. We actually didn't even use a branding agency for this, nice. uh, which which very proud of this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kara, it's a combination of uh, Carmen, uh, who is my co-founder, 
So her name is Carmen Chen Wu. So Carmen's her first name, and Aaron. So if you take C A R Carmen, the first three letters of her name, and the two first letter of my name coming together, that's the Cara with the two A's at the end. So we felt it was very authentic. Um, authenticity is very important to us, you know, and and it's very much embedded in our brand values. So we felt good about that. We felt that it was feminine, you know, because the brand primarily it's a woman's brand. So mm-hmm. I think I think it speaks to the audience that we're trying to cater to. Um, and um, surprisingly, it wasn't well. Kara was taken, but you know we ended up going with Kara Sport in terms of the URL. So 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 yeah, that's the that's the sort of. But man, let me tell you, that was that was hard. I, I as well because you're an entrepreneur yourself. Coming up with a name, it's it's very difficult. But yeah. you know, I think you know for for those of you out there listening and and either went through this or going through this or will go through this in the past, in the future. Um, I think stay true to who you are in terms of authenticity. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, sure, if you have the budget, go with a branding agency because they are experts and they will help you think through things that you probably wouldn't be able to think of yourself. But you'll be surprised if you do a little bit of soul searching how much you can discover. You know, and that's kind of what we did. We kind of lock ourselves in the room for a good two weeks. No all the way but, you know, <laughs> two weeks straight no eating no sleeping <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah figuratively speaking um it kind of just did a lot of soul searching it's like who want to be you know kind of ask those more theoretical questions that you might not ask if you know in in in, in a daily basis right so i think yeah. being authentic is, is a takeaway i mean you must have gone through like thousand names uh you know option wise just like no 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 because you have to come up with a lot of bad names before that's you can right. land on a good one that's right yeah no it was you know for us it was just a lot of sticky notes you know it was basically <laughs> sticky we took notes all over the wall all over and it was to your point it was funny because it was basically the the the, the for sure knows is like no no well on earth right i'm gonna name ourselves that there's the maybes it's like ah I could be convinced either way. Let's think, sleep on that for a few weeks and see. And then there's the, I think this is it. And let me tell you, if you look at those three columns, the, the one that does like, I think it is, had like two sticky notes. Right. Like, you know, like we had like zero ideas. Like, oh, what, what are we gonna do? There were a lot of no's, few maybes, and like one or two sticky notes that says like, yeah, that's the one. Um, matter of fact, actually, we didn't land on Kara until the very end. And uh, I know I remember exactly the moment that that I, I it occurred to us. We were in a in a in in the elevator. And we're like, what if we do this and this? We're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. So just that that eureka haha moment, you know, that, yeah. that came to us. So nice in the elevator. That's yep. awesome. Never know. Never, Never know, know where the ideas will come. <laughs> it's so true. It just comes whenever you can, when you can least expect it. Exactly. And especially when you don't want it, which is like at the end of a two-week journey of pounding out a bunch of names. The, the best idea happens when you are sleep deprived and with a lot of, uh, with a very little food in your stomach. I, I, <laughs> Lots I, of I, coffee. I believe it. <laughs> awesome. And so how did you realize, when was there a point in time where you guys both kind of looked at each other and were like, I think this is working or did yeah. this never happen? You know, when, at what point were you thinking, okay, we really have something here. What, what did that look like? Like, how did you measure success in the early days? Yeah. You know, it was a lot of chest pounding, honestly, you know, you have to, right. You have to do the, the, the fair amount of chest pounding because there's so much negativity around you in the early days. The first three years, I would say it's always the toughest for any startup. And, you know, having gone through that journey once or twice now, 
um, it's you, you have to stay positive, you know, like you, so you have to punch your chest from time to time, even though in reality, you know, you are the verge of closing. You, <laughs> you just have to like, you know, just like, yep. You know, and that's and to a certain extent, it helps to having a co-founder. You mm-hmm. know, I think single founder entities are very tough, yeah. very tough, not because you're not capable. It's because sometimes you need a shoulder to cry, mm-hmm. and, you know, like it's, you just need to hug it out and just like having somebody on the other end of the mic or on the other end of, of, of the table, just like, just kind of just listen to me for 10 minutes and just let me whine for, for 10 minutes. I'm freaking out. This isn't working. I'm, what are we I'm, doing? I'm, I'm freaking the F out and, and need, need to just vent. Right. And so, so I, but I think just to address your question, um, so take it from the top in terms of taking from the bottom in terms of like how we started, um, we produced a first batch. Um, it was a small quantity. Uh, so the, we, the, the official story is that it, it was sold out right away, but reality is that it was sold out with friends and family, right? So <laughs> the truth that, is told. I love it. This is the truth show. You, know, <laughs> you get the real deal. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, and on high side, I can say this now because to a certain extent, I think we, 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 yeah. we we're able to go through this and, and I hope this will inspire others to not give up because in the beginning it's tough, you know, like yeah. it's, it's very easy. Just like, ah, it's not going to work. Let me well, go back. And as an aspiring founder, you hear these stories, Oh, they sold out and they're like, Oh my God, I, what if we don't sell out? Like, you know, yeah. there's all this pressure. What does it mean? I mean, they could have sold five units and they're yeah. quote unquote sold out. Right. Don't get full. Don't get full by, by those things that, yeah. cause they, they, they're not, they're not always what it seems like, you know? So, so, I mean, reality is that it was sold out. A lot of it was friends and family, but there were some real customers. And, and I think the first aha moment for me and Carmen was when we had real customer testimonial coming to us and telling us why they bought the bag and how heartfelt it, it felt to us, at least in terms of, you know, what it did for her. Right. Because you got to realize that at the end of the day, we're not just selling a fashion garment. Right. It's not like, oh, just made me look like beautiful. That's that's great. Um, And obviously we aspire to create that kind of emotions within our customers. But, you know, we have customers that's telling us that, you know, I have a bad problem. I used to carry two or three different bags. Um, Never really found a bag that actually looked good, that I can actually, you know, like be functional. Like after using your products, like I can stand up a little straighter. Like we hear like nuggets like that in terms of customer, real customer testimonial, like, oh, you know what? Actually, you know, I, I, I'm, we're never happy with our product 100%. I think that's just part of being an entrepreneur or yeah. being a founder is I'm the biggest critic of my products. You mm-hmm. know, I, I will all, so we're still like, yeah, that's great. But I think we need to do this, do, do that. You want to tweak this, tweak that. Um, so, so, and that's still a continued journey and we're always going to be critical of, of our, our products first and foremost. But I think that's the first moment that kind of gave us a little glimpse of, Hey, you know, like we, we, we think there's a market out there. Um, you know, because we don't do a lot of wholesale. I think if you talk to other brands, a lot of them, when you listen to the story, it was when they get the first big order from like a retailer. Uh, right. That moment never arrived for us just because we, we, we never really actively chased it. I do have to say that when we struck our first partnership with Equinox. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that. That happened at XRC Labs. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That, that was very early days. Uh-huh. And that was very rewarding. You know, that was rewarding. I think mainly because 
A, give us recognition in terms yeah. of a validation, you know, as right. far as like, hey, there's a product market fit. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in product market fits. You know, like if, if, it, if you can sit somewhere and think about, hey, the world needs these, but if you don't find the right audience to purchase it, or, or to resonate with your product that, you know, you just have, you just have a little project or a little hobby. It's not a business yet. Right. So, so having the product market fits important. And, and to us, that was, you know, even though we're primarily direct to consumer e-commerce, having that kind of validation was very, very, uh, very important to me. And obviously we love the people that we work with in Equinox and, and form mm -hmm. an awesome relationship over the years. And I call all of them, my friends. Um, but, but yeah, that, I think those are, very, very early days, probably that was the two um, the two data points that we needed right away to start giving us that that yeah. that chest pounding <laughs> confidence confidence <laughs> to, to, to uh, we're doing to something going. right here somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> So I know you've said before that you are not venture backed. I'd love to talk to you about fundraising since you have such a different story. Can you kind yeah. of speak to what fundraising has looked like for you? Yeah, no, and, and another topic I can talk forever about. Um, yeah, so, you know, when we, you got to bear in mind when we first started 2014, and again, you, you know this way yourself as well, Lee, I think, you know, there was this big, I don't want to use the word hype, but there's this big, I don't know, aura or even expectation to a certain extent about retail DTC brands chasing venture funding, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were a few, few brands before us that chased it and got it, right? I think I mentioned Bonobos, obviously Warby and a few others out there. And even a few of the brands that started at the same time as we did went out there chased it got it outdoor voice was another one that just comes to my mind and and we started no no different than that we we're like really excited i was wagging my tail all the time it's like oh, oh you know like venture funding and <laughs> it is sexy to a certain extent right when you have when you go from very little funding to like all of a sudden be able to hire the right staff that you need mm -hmm. or or get the right assortment of inventory or get the right website. I mean, there's a lot of awesome things that you're like, wow, you know, like I, I want that. <laughs> but then we peel the onion a little bit, at least for us. And we saw our first share of term sheets. So it wasn't the fact that, you know, and especially back then where a lot of venture funds were ready to sign those checks. Um, so we saw our fair share of, uh, of term sheets in terms of propositions. I, I just never really found a fit. And matter of fact, I've been pretty vocal in, in through interviews and so on and so forth. I, I will go to, to, to the point of saying actually that venture backed funding structure might not be the best fit for retail brands. You mm. know, I think, like I think it works with. What's that? Like that's a bold statement. You're saying all of them basically as a whole almost that they're it's not a good fit, you think. Why that, is that? that? That's right. And here's my opinion, and it's not right or wrong. It's just my opinion. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, first of all, I think it works really well for tech. You know, when you think about a technology company, right. right? When you can, once you get funding, you can scale very easily. Yes, run, the product and everything. Exactly. Scalable. Right. Yeah. Very, very scalable businesses. When it comes mm -hmm. to product companies, you got to realize that it takes four to eight months just to make the product best case scenario if you're counting design it's even longer right mm -hmm. so so and then you have to give yourself time to sell it so right. as far as 
So it's not, it's, so it's not as a scalable of a business model. So my point of saying that might not be a fit is because the founder goals might not be 100% aligned with the venture funding, right? Because venture capital, as you know, venture funding, they always have the eyes on the exit. And, and I mean, that's, that's the name of the game. That's how they make money. I mean, at the end of the day, right? So I just never could find, you know, and maybe just, I didn't look hard enough or just, you know, maybe, maybe we weren't ready, but it could be a number of reasons, but I just felt at the end of the day, you know, we, that the goals were not aligned. You know, I wanted to build a business that that's, that's long lasting and that is profitable you know, I, I wouldn't dare to say I want to give it to my grandkids. That that's never the idea. But I want the brand to sustain. You know, right. And and I think about sustainability quite a bit as a, as a brand owner. And you know, when people think about the word sustainability, they always think about sustainable products. Which, mm -hmm. by the way, we think about that all the time. I mean, if you talk to Carmen, if she was here, she would tell you that, you know. Tw easily 20 to 40% of her time in terms of sourcing is thinking about how do we bring more sustainable products and, you know, a little plug here, we will be launching more sustainable products in, in the next few months. So you will see more coming from us from that area. But for me, sustainable is also corporate sustainability, which basically means that if I hire 20 people, I have responsibility over that, right? Yeah. And, and if, if I'm not responsible in that hiring process, what happens if my burn rate runs out and I didn't get enough revenue to get to my next round? So right. now I have to go back and actually fire those 20 people that I hired not that long ago. And what do I do? What do I tell their families? You know, like all the customers, when I had to say, if I had to close my door to my customers and like, sorry, you can't return the product anymore that we send it to you because we, you know, we stand behind our products and so forth because we're going out of business. You know what I mean? Like there's, so we, I'm like, you know, I, I, to a certain extent, I wasn't looking to grow quickly. I guess that's the thing. You yeah. know, I want, to, I was looking to grow, but I was, I was looking to grow sustainably in, mm -hmm. in a very, you know, profitable way, if you may. Yeah. So, yeah. So we ended up just, you know, say, you know what? No, no to venture funding. Uh, we ended up, going through the angel route and also, you know, fortunately enough for us, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, because our family comes from supply chain and global, global supply chain and manufacturing, we were able to get very favorable terms, you know, from, mm -hmm. from, from our own inner network. Um, so that helped quite a bit in comes to inventory because in the early days, there's no marketing cost, right? Every early days is all about product and inventory, at least for brands. Yeah. Um, so, so that was, that was really kind of the thinking behind, you know, kind of saying no to, to, to venture funding from the business standpoint on a personal basis. I got to tell you, Lee, I mean, when we were trying to raise, I felt that I was becoming more and more a professional fundraiser versus a professional business manager, mm, right? Like I was spending less time managing my business and yeah. thinking about how do I create product affinity and, and create relationship with my customers. Yeah. Um, which is as a business owner and CEO, I think that's what I should be doing, you know, in terms of perfecting yeah. the product, making the shopping experience better versus trying to go out there and fundraise. Right. right. I, and, and look, I'm not trying to bash on any other brands that have gone through that journey. I think it's very admirable that they've done that. Um, I, 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 that's not my life. I, I, I didn't want that. Right. I didn't want to be a fundraiser. So, right. so that, that, that wasn't a, a personal note that I just felt that it was, it was, uh, 
it was a no good. That's a very good way of putting it because you really are. If you're venture backed, the CEO is a professional fundraiser, essentially. Like that's your job and you're maintaining relationships with investors and you're just constantly thinking about the next round and how you can build those new relationships or get intros and just start always thinking about the next round. Um, and it's really tough to be actually operating the business um, when you're, you know, VC backed, whereas, which is probably why, you know, they have COOs pretty early on, whereas like a brand, if um, they're, if it's like a lifestyle business or, you know, wants to grow organically, like you guys have, then you do actually, you know, you get to operate the business instead of go out and try to fundraise all the time and spend the majority of your job doing that. So it is like a different type of CEO, I think, role, like you're saying for VC backed companies versus not, would you agree? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, there are folks that are great at it. I mean, I know, I mean, on top of my mind, three or four great friends of mine who are CEOs who are just natural fundraisers, right? Yeah. And they're great at updating investors, communicating mm-hmm. with them, creating a buzz about themselves, creating a buzz about the brand. I don't want to say I'm not good at that. It's just not something I'm interested in, right? right. I, I choose this journey because I want to create a product that I think can impact people's life and create certain, you know, tinklings in people's feelings, you know, that, that makes me proud, right? It's like one of those things where I'm so much more proud of a bunch of things we've done in the last three or four years, and I'm sure I'm going to touch on those, than if I was in the headline saying that Kara raised $20 million. Right. That means nothing to me. Like if you would tell me that, oh, hey, because you hear that all the time in the in the startup community. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, so-and-so raised, you know, a whopping $40 million in, in their Series A and the valuation is this and that. And I'm like, I don't really know what that means other than right. that you were really good at fundraising, right? And you sold a great story because a lot of it's just basically with selling people on what the company can be. It's not like, you know, you're truly yeah. making that much money in terms of revenue, right? So it's, it's a, it, so, so, so when I hear that, it's like, okay, what, what, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that you are, have a good business. Right. I, I don't think it means that, you know? So I, I never aspired to be in the headlines for Kara raised X. I want to be in the headlines for, you know, Kara helped this many people through the pandemic, which we have, and I'm sure we're going to talk about yes, that. Yes, actually, I would love to talk about that. I mean, you guys created the most, quote unquote, breathable mask in the world. How the hell did that happen? And let's talk about Kara Cares as well. I mean, COVID inspired, I guess, a lot of innovation there. So let's hear it. Yeah, talking about another a good example of how to stumble on something that we always thought about we wanted to do, but never really had the opportunity to materialize it, right? So COVID happened. This was, you know, early last year. We didn't want to say stay on the sidelines, you know. Look, I'm not that old, and I joke around with my family, my team. I said, hopefully, this is the only pandemic I see in my lifetime. It's been yeah. very tough to see all the sufferings around the world, and and it's still happening in certain parts of the world. But you know, I think when I back in the early days when we talked to other brands, like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because we you know we all share notes, right? All the founders, and you know, have. Yep. I don't think I have a big network, but, you know, a niche, nice, tight network that I think I call them confidants, you know, that we share personal notes. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And all that. And, and a lot of them is like, ah, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of uncertainty. We just kind of wait and see what happens. And I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want I, I don't want to wait and see. Like, I want to join the fight. Mm. So I'm like, well, what can we do? I mean, like, 
bags is not necessarily like a pandemic thing. So, so we sat down with a lot of nonprofits. We sat down with the city of New York. We sat down with a bunch of different people. It's like, how do we help, right? And back then, the early days of the pandemic, it was all about um, masks. You know, not the N95s, because I think the government was already starting to, you know, kind of mobilize and getting those to the first line responders. So to a certain extent, we knew that's either happening or will be happening very soon. But we, you know, the more people we talk to, we just realize, how about the underprivileged people? You know, how about the people who don't have a PR budget, right? The, the homeless shelters, the foster homes, you know, these are, these are people just like don't, don't have the means. And, and believe me, they need masks just like everybody, if, if no yeah. more, right? Because right. they live in, in very, very confined areas and, and so on and so forth. So we um, had an emergency meeting, um, me, Carmen, and, and also the board really quickly made a decision to convert part of our factory into essentially making masks. Um, using our scrap material. This was in the early days of the pandemic. And then we donate, we started donating. And, um, you know, it wasn't really a thing. It was just like, almost like a quickly, how can we quickly do something? Because we didn't know how long this thing was going to last either, right? So mm -hmm. it could it could be gone tomorrow, but it could, could be the last a long time, but let's just help as much as we can. And um, the word got out on social media because, you know, people start tagging us and, and all that, that we were made using our scrap material, which is a, a pretty fine material um, for, you know, reusable, washable masks. So some of our loyal customers went on social. It's like, hey, can, can you sell us some? And, and it was interesting because we're like, sure, you know, we made a small batch. You know, we obviously didn't want to lose the charity component of things. So we continued donating Plus, for every mask we sold, we added another matching donation to different organizations that we were donating. And, uh, and then everything started from there. I mean, you know, I think Wall Street Journal in the summer last year did end up calling us the most breathable mask in the world. They, they did, I think, a study um, of about 50 mask companies back then. Um, and then with those things, you know, it's not like you get to actually submit and, and, and I want right. to run for a certain price or anything like that, right? It's like <laughs> they, they just do they, their own research and are like, oh, by the way, here you go. <laughs> exactly. So, and you don't know until it comes out. It's not like they give you a heads up either. It's like, hey, by the way, tomorrow there's going to be an article in Wall Street Journal about you. You know, nope. it's like, just like uh, your it friend just like, sends it to you and you're like, oh, wow, we're mentioned. Thanks for letting like, me know. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. You know, um, my, my point is look, the, the masking was never meant to be a money making. Or, but, you know, what they did allow us to do is basically create a lot of goodwill with our customers, um, allowed us to reach actually a broader customers that we did not reach out to um, if we didn't have the event or didn't have this, this particular initiative. And, and back to the point that, that, you know, when I think about what I'm most proud of, like back to the point I was mentioning before, I'm so much more humble and proud of being able to help that many people throughout the pandemic than if I was raising like, I don't know, like X million dollars and getting X million dollar evaluation, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's so, and it just reminded the Carmen and I of why we started the brand, you know, it's mm -hmm. not to make a name for ourselves for capital raising. It's, it's yeah. to make an impact on people. 
So I'd love to hear one of some of your biggest challenges, you know, building a startup is really, really hard. Um, like we were saying, you know, there's all types of news stories out there about success and, uh, you know, celebrating that success, but it's rare that you actually hear stories about when things go wrong. Um, what are some mistakes that you've made or things that have gone wrong as part of the journey of building a company? Yeah. Constant struggle. There's there's yeah. always something. Uh, some. I mean, look, brand is a living, breathing thing, you know, and it's not always peachy by any means, and it's always a juggling, balancing act. I think you know, fundamentally, I think I, I kind of like you know, ten thousand feet view in terms of how I think about managing risk or managing operations or managing the brand overall. For us, it's all about processes, and that you know, I tie that directly back into my GE days in terms right. of, you know, creating. If you don't have the right processes, everything will be very chaotic. So, so I think we do a pretty decent job in terms of creating controls and check and balances and, and processes along the way. Too. But is there like a specific moment or like a story that you can 100%. share of like you know a fire was in our manufacturing plant, you know, yeah. like something yeah. crazy. Knock on wood, not, 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 no, no, fire. no, no fire <laughs> happened. But uh, no, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, stories I can share. Um, you know, the first one that comes to my mind is it just speaks to also just how important it is to hire the right team too. Cause that's, you know, if you ask me probably currently what's my number one struggle um, is hiring the right team um, to help you grow your business. I think that's the, that, that, that's probably one of the top challenges as a growing, fast growing company, right? In terms of getting the right people on board to, to, to help you fill the roles that you need and then also share the same values and then grow together. Um, to share some stories, I mean, look, you know, I remember one time this was uh, early days where the factory basically messed up one of the components on the bag. Um, it's, it goes back to our checks and balances. Usually we have QA control in, at the point of manufacturing, right? So that you can check your issues on the spot. So if there are problems, get corrected right away before it gets to you in the warehouse in, in, in the US. Well, someone somewhere along the way failed to check one of the components of the bags. And we found out that uh, it was wrong. It was, it was basically, it was one of our locks because our bags come with locks and it was mounted uh, differently than, than we basically asked them to, to mount it. And here we are, you know, we have hundreds of bags sitting in our warehouse, right? Um, all well packaged, you know, we have, we have a very elaborate packaging process. So they already come super well packaged. And, uh, and knowingly that within that one, the component is wrong. So what do you do? You know, it's funny because, you know, like you hear stories about product recalls, right? In, in, you know, when it comes to cars or airbags. Right. Usually, you know, I think, <laughs> yeah, and people don't think too much all of it. It's like, oh, it sucks to be them. But right. let me tell you, like when that happens to you as a business owner or CEO of a company, it's, it's a real, real challenge. And we immediately made a decision of recalling the products that we shipped out, deploying a team, including myself and my co-founders in a small team from, from our main office, go to the warehouse, um, for a four day straight, I think all of us slept near nothing. I mean, it was right. basically living in the, in the warehouse, uh, for a straight four days, pretty much 
essentially working with our craftsmen. We had to fly in, you know, a couple of craftsmen's from overseas to help us with this, and and basically just manually in the U.S. opening each package and then manually making the updates. I mean, wow, the it, hundreds know, of bags, <laughs> hundreds, hundreds by, and and wow. we have pictures, you know, and I, and it's funny. I sent one to one of my old bosses back in GE. It's like, yep, if you wonder what I'm doing right now. This is it, you know, like me sitting on a little stool in the workbench and, you know, like doing, 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 um, but, but, you know, goes to show nothing is too small as a, a you know, as a, as a founder, right? You got to roll up your sleeves. I have a freaking amazing team that when, when that happened, everybody's growing out sleeves. Like I'm dropping everything. We need to go out there and actually make it right. So customer service, reach out customer service head of operations roll out her sleeve and all of us went to the warehouse. It was a, it was a real com- camaraderie moment, right? In terms of seeing the team coming together in, in moments yeah. of crisis. But um, yeah, I mean that, that, you know, obviously those problems are preventable and it, it ha- has since been prevented from, from all of our product because we have now the right checks and balances. But yeah, I mean, just, just one, one example of, so what you know. happened to the bags? Like, did you, what did you, did you fix them and package them back up? Like, or did, what happened? What'd you guys do to solve the problem? Yeah. So that's what we did. We, we replaced them manually. We had to basically open one by one, replace mm. the part that was wrong, recall, because all of our products are serialized. So recall the products that we already shipped out. Thankfully, it weren't that many because it was a new batch. So we call it right away. But we did have to recall, obviously, for the ones that we recall, we replaced the bag free shipping back and forth mm-hmm. to the customers that already own it, which, you know, honestly, like, you know, that that's another lesson learned for us is in moments of crisis in front of the customer, transparency, transparency, transparency. Don't hide yeah. anything. Yeah, that's you know, really good. So many brands that, especially when they're small, it's just like, ah, let's not say anything. Let's yeah, just, they won't notice. Like <laughs> sweep it under, under the rug. Let yeah. me tell you, like those things will always come back and bite you if you're not transparent with your customers, you know? Yeah. So we, we're very transparent and we did the best we can in terms of reaching out to that group of people and we're just like, hey, listen, we screwed up. I'm sorry. Happy to refund you or give you a new bag. You choose. Yeah. Yeah. 99%. I think there was one customer that's like, you know what, connection for another bag. So she didn't return. She just wanted different products. But everybody else was came back and was like, sure, send me a new one. And 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 that's what we did. So it was uh it was a good moment of learning for sure. But you know, it just goes to show nothing, nothing's too big or nothing's too small. Right, right. And luckily, you didn't have to ship them back to the manufacturing, uh, you know, maybe in China or elsewhere, you could fix the problem in the US and ship it back out just with the team that you had. That's, that, that's awesome. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that case was a batch that was made in Italy, actually. And oh, okay. we instead of choosing to ship it to Italy, we just flew out to Craftsman's from Italy to come on site and kind of direct traffic oh, nice. and, and, and all that. It was just it was a cheaper thing to do. <laughs> Help I mean, advise the domestic team. <laughs> exactly. It's like, why don't you teach us how to replace this versus sending the entire thing back to you and have you do right. it? Right. So, yeah. Shipping's a little expensive to do it that way. That's right. Yeah. So before we wrap up here, because I know that you have to run, um, you know, are there any other final pieces of advice or any other stories you'd like to share that you think would be really valuable for the uh, audience? Yeah, I mean, look, knowing who who the audience is, because we you and I chatted before this in terms of uh, the listeners. Um, look, it, it's it's 
if you are aspiring to start a brand or 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 try it out, I would say it's a very rewarding experience. I say make sure that you have product market fit and then test quick, fail fast, and then reiterate. I, I think that's probably the best advice I have. And, and it's not on the business level. Even today, you know, when I think about all our marketing strategies and even product design to a certain extent, you know, the truth is because you don't always have the right answer, right? Yeah. Um, but the 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 key is to be humble enough and have the right processes to actually try something quickly. Fail if you need to fail. Hopefully you don't, but if you do, do it quickly and cheaply yeah. and then do it again. You know, so I think that's that's kind of what one of the best lessons I think I've learned, you know, throughout this process. It, it does tie back to again my G days with Lean Six Sigma, because that's the whole philosophy they teach is that kind of the continuous process improvement and uh, never settle, never stop improving, you know, like never say I'm done, good enough, let's move on. Um, but that's that's probably the biggest advice I would give to, you know, I, I you know, we mentor and invest in some uh, some brands and, and others. And that's that's probably the number one advice I give them. Awesome. And so what's next for Cara? Can you share any upcoming exciting news or any kind of product that's coming out or partnerships or what can we see next? Yeah, a lot of exciting things, some of them on the NDA. Um, so can't really disclose and chat too much about that. I think that, you know, look, we're very bullish about retail in general and bullish about e-commerce. I think if anything we learned throughout the pandemic is that, you know, I think e-commerce is here to stay in a major big way in terms of growth, right? If there was yeah. any doubt before that, I mean, I, right. I, we, we never really doubted, of course. Um, so, so I think for us, it's all about uh, potentially product expansion and could be a category expansion or just, you know, expansion of existing products. Um, and a lot of that is also just driven by our customers. You know, I think now that we've been around for a little while, customers are asking what else you got, you, you right. know? So, so I think that gives us a lot of ideas and nuggets in terms of things that we want to test and so on and so forth. There are two collaborations that's coming that again, we can't really disclose, but it's really cool, really exciting. Can't wait to share that with the world. So that's, that's also coming. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we, we continuously improving different ways that we can build better affinity with our customers. I think that's kind of our number one goal, you know? So whether it's, you know, improving our technology stack in terms of better shopping experience, uh, return and, and experience, you know? So always thinking about what can we do better in terms of creating that affinity with our customers. So that's definitely coming. But I mean, look, if, if you haven't followed us, you know, we, we can be found on Instagram. Um, and that's the main channel that we interact with our customers to have that two-way dialogue. So you can find us at Cara Sport. So that's the handle, C-A-R-A-A, -A, like Lee mentioned before, Sport. So that's um, that's one way. And then, of course, you know, you can find us on carasport.com or cara.co. Both of those URLs work. And then our customer service love chatting with our customers. So if you have recommendations or things that you want to chat, should us know that we will be more than happy to get back to you and just connect. I noticed on LinkedIn, the headliner for the brand is designed for fashion, crafted for sport. I love that tagline. It's, it's so, I think, defines Cara in so many, it's like such an awesome way. 
Um, Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it, it was, uh, again, another tagline that somewhat came organic to us. But again, you know, for us, we just felt that, uh, you know, it, it kind of captures the, the, the thesis and kind of the, why we started the brand and how we're going about creating products at the end of the day. So thank, yeah. thanks for saying that. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was awesome hearing your story. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure we'll be chatting again very soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.